Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Everyday Law, where we take a look at the intersection between the law and the lives of ordinary people. We're broadcasting from Howard Community College, Dragon Digital Radio. And I'd like to note at the outset that any of the opinions that are voiced on this show are not the opinions of Howard Community College, and that any of the legal discussion that takes place on this show is not intended to be legal advice. It is imperative, if you have an individual legal situation, that you consult with a lawyer and get sound advice. Our guest today is a returning guest, one of the stars of the show, Ronald Schwartz of College Park, Maryland. Welcome to the show, Ron. Hi, good to see you, Bob. So we're going to touch on a topic today that's been somewhat controversial. I believe we discussed it relatively briefly in your first ever appearance, and it's a discussion about Title IX. And Ron, you have some knowledge about this Title IX? I do. Uh, I've been litigating some Title IX sexual misconduct cases at the University of Maryland recently. I currently have a case in federal court over Title IX. It's uh, been a big issue on college campuses since about, I would think, around 2013, 2014. A lot of the campuses, in response to directives from the Obama administration, changed their policies on Title IX. Let's take it back just a little bit. What is Title IX? It's a law, right? Title IX is a law. It was passed, don't hold me to this, but I believe it was passed in the 80s. It was. And it was the original impetus for it was to equalize spending in college campuses for both men and women, particularly women's sports. Okay. It was uh, Title IX says very simply that any uh, educational institution that receives federal funding can't discriminate on the basis of gender. Very simple law. Okay. That's that's almost a quote of the essence of Title IX. Sure. And it was used because. At many colleges and universities, male athletic programs were funded fully and women's athletic programs were an afterthought. And so uh, Title IX was passed to say that in the non-revenue sports, and that we're not talking about, you know, football or basketball or Division I school, because those those sports are actually self-supporting. They sell tickets and they have advertising to support those schools. But in the non-revenue producing sports, schools can't spend more for male athletic programs than they do for female athletic programs. And that was what it was about. And it actually, it had great benefits. I mean, uh, if you look at school athletics, women's programs have taken a huge jump uh, since Title IX was passed. Women's basketball... At many colleges and universities, women's field hockey, women's soccer, these are things that were just an afterthought before Title IX. And and so it has changed the face of athletics at most uh, American colleges and universities. I'm certain to think at, at HCC. You know, that's undoubtedly true. So it sounds as though it had a well-intended initial purpose. Absolutely. And what happened in uh, the recent past during the Obama administration was that there was lots of publicity about essentially sexual misconduct on campus. There's a lot of disputed science about this. Social science or science? We're talking about social science, survey research. Uh, You've probably heard or you might have heard a lot of statistics say one in four or one in five women 
are uh, the victims of rape on campus or sexual, some kind of sexual misconduct. It's hard to verify those figures. There's been a lot of controversy about, you know, the types of questions or the surveys. There's been varying results. Of, is, is it one in five? Is it one in ten? But, but in any event, there's certainly been an understanding that women are have been put in situations in campus where, you know, there have been fr- sort of frat culture, frat parties. Women, football culture, football, football parties. Culture where, yeah, where, where, where women have been raped or, you know, they've made complaints about being treated in a, in a situation where the school didn't take it seriously. Certainly some well-publicized cases involving student-athletes that were not prosecuted, uh, the Florida State case. Remember the guy, was it Stanford, the swimmer? This, who, well, yeah. right. There's been multiple yeah. cases. But as a result of this publicity, uh, the Obama administration passed some rulemaking. They, they essentially sent a letter called a Dear Colleague Letter, which was sent to every college and university in the country. And it was from the Department of Education Office for Civil Rights. And it suggested that if you don't enforce Title IX rules to deal with sexual misconduct on campus, we may uh, withhold your federal funding because from our point of view, sexual misconduct is sex discrimination and the school has a responsibility to maintain a safe environment for everybody at the school, its faculty, staff, and students. And so as a result of pressure from the Obama administration, these sort of suggested regulations were, were put out to deal with sexual misconduct. And the Obama administration did bring cases, investigations against many uh, Division I large state universities, private schools also, saying that they were not enforcing the right to have a campus free of sexual discrimination. And so uh, things changed fairly drastically in the last eight years. So again, just the way Title IX was a well-intended thing initially to do various things, addressing this culture of sexual misconduct on campus, rape, sexual assault, being unreported and unacted on was a highly desirable thing to take action with regard to whether it's one in five or one in 10. Those are horrifying statistics, you would agree. Absolutely. And the problem is with with many sort of legal or procedural changes that are not well thought through, and I would point out that the changes that the Obama administration foisted on on colleges and universities were not the result of regular rulemaking, public comment. Basically, some people got together in the Office for Civil Rights and they sort of handed down a fiat that says, we expect you to do certain things. And if you don't do them, you're going to be in our crosshairs. And so certainly colleges and universities got the message. The last thing they would ever want is to have their federal funding withdrawn. And when, when you talk about federal funding, any college that takes federal student loans is the recipient of federal funding. So for example, a the, the Department of Education could say we're not going to allow we're not going to offer Stafford loans to your students. Well, that would be disastrous. a disastrous uh, event for any college or university. So they held a lot of leverage over them. So new, I guess, would we call them guidelines? Guidelines, yes, guidelines that were essentially imposed by fiat. Now, are, do they have legal force and effect? Well, they actually don't. Okay, they don't. And, and that's the interesting thing. These are not federal rules. They are not legally enforceable. Uh, but 
obviously a, a college says, I don't want to be the victim of an investigation because a federal agency says I am not enforcing the guidelines the way they think I ought to be doing it. So therefore, whether or not they had the force of law, they certainly had you know substantial leverage over the actions of colleges and universities. And, and let's talk, let, let me get specifically what I'm talking about. One of the difficulties in any kind of rape or sexual misconduct case is that many times there are no witnesses. They are what's called a he said, she said. Sure. And we only have the word of the participants. The, of the participants. Typically male versus female, although it could be a gay couple where it could be people of the same sex. And it's an interesting question of whether, you know, a gay sexual misconduct uh, action would be gender discrimination. But put it, putting that aside. We'll get back to that, but go ahead. But, but in heterosexual, in, in typical heterosexual rape or sexual assault, there's going to be two participants and no witnesses. And in a criminal context... If a woman were to accuse a man of rape, and, and let's be clear, the vast majority of the complainants in these cases are women, and the vast majority of the respondents in these cases are men. Sure. If a woman makes a complaint and she were go to go to the police about it, then the state's attorney would have to evaluate the evidence, and if they charged... If the male was charged with rape, he'd be a criminal defendant. Uh, she'd have to go in front of a jury. She'd be subject to cross-examination. And the state would have to prove their rape case against, beyond, a reasonable, beyond doubt. a reasonable doubt, which is a very high standard of proof. In most, in, in many, I shouldn't say most, it varies from college to college, but in many student disciplinary proceedings on college campuses, and that is to say that if you were to deface, if you were a student at HCC and you were to go and spray graffiti at the campus and you were caught, uh, not only you might you be subject to criminal charges, but you also might be subject to student disciplinary charges for doing that. Sure. In most student disciplinary cases... I shouldn't say most, but in many, the standard of proof in those kinds of cases is clear and convincing evidence. Okay, let's get around for a minute and talk about standards of proof, because there are different ones. Lay people don't necessarily, as I've learned, always understand what the different things are. So the highest standard is proof beyond a reasonable doubt, correct? Right. And if you're, and I hate to make football analogies about this because it's not exactly great, but I would think reasonable doubt is, you know, you're you you got to you got to bring the football at least to the 20 you know i would think that it it's the way it's described as you have to be so sure about something as you would about some, an important decision in your life like getting married or something like that so that's how sure you would have to be of someone's guilt you know how sure are you that you would want to get married to a person it's that same level of confidence in how right you are about your decision. And so, for example, to send somebody to jail, it's a very high standard of proof. The state has a burden in any criminal case to prove their, their case beyond a reasonable doubt. In a civil case, a typical civil case. Civil case meaning like a car crash case or something uh, like that? You're being sued for money. Okay. You're being sued for money. You have an employment discrimination case, and you say that your your boss fired you because you were black or because you were a woman and you were discriminated against, and you want your job back and you want back pay. In that case, the standard of proof is a preponderance of the evidence. 
Another way to say that is more likely than not. Okay. One often sees in the courtroom, if you're a juror, the lawyer showing the scales of justice and the evidence has to tip ever so slightly in favor of right. the if it, if it moving tips, party. If, it fits, if it's just enough to tip it one way or the other, then uh, that's a preponderance of the evidence. You might say 50 point, you know, just over the 50 yard line. 50.1%. And, and I gather that clear and convincing evidence is somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. Okay. More than a preponderance, less than proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Less than doubt. proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And the reason why that's a standard that has frequently been adopted in student disciplinary proceedings is because a student disciplinary proceeding is not about money. It's about punishment. It's about you've committed an infraction against the school and we may suspend you or we may expel you, which could have significant uh, consequences on your on your criminal tran- on your student transcript or on your future ability to go to grad school or to get employment to get employment and so we don't want to make it as hard as a criminal case because we're not sending you to jail but it's also more than just asking for money so you know that's why many student codes have had clear and convincing evidence as the standard of proof now what the obama administration did in the dear colleague letter in 2011 is it insisted that in any school disciplinary proceeding involving sexual misconduct, uh, the standard of proof had to be preponderance of the evidence. That is to say- So just tipping the scales ever so slightly. 50.1%, correct. And so, of course, in a he said, she said, it's much easier to get a conviction if you only have to be slightly more sure of one side than the other. There's additional complicating factors that I think you will allude to ultimately, which include things like drinking and marijuana and drug use, that very often these interactions that become disciplinary proceedings for sexual misconduct arise in those circumstances. Isn't that right? Well, absolutely. And let's talk about some other things that Title IX did. It said that both sides have equal rights. So, for example, if, if the complainant, she would have the right to appeal. Normally, only a person that is a defendant or a respondent in a case, if they lose, they would have the right to appeal. In Title IX, they said both sides have to have the same rights. So even if, if the male were to go before a disciplinary hearing and be acquitted, then the, 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 the complainant would have the right to appeal. But what the other things they did was they said because sexual harassment, uh, the whole process of proving a case traumatizes the victim, they basically instituted or strongly suggested that schools do other things to make sure the victims were not traumatized. And one of those things was that they did not require that the victim have to appear and be cross-examined by the complainant. Now, cross-examination is a feature of our justice system in, in, in... in every kind of case? Every kind of legal proceeding. Okay. And, and in Maryland, for example, even in administrative hearings. And what do I mean by an administrative hearing? An administrative hearing is a hearing where a, a governmental agency is having a hearing to determine whether or not, for example, you should be fired or whether you have a grievance or whether or not your license, your, should, your be license suspended. should be suspended. Any kind of action involving the state government where a right might be taken away, you have a right to have a hearing before that right is taken away. It can't be just done by fiat. And so there's a whole area of the law called administrative law, which I'm not going to get into, but certainly any student disciplinary hearing at a college or university, if it's a state college or university, is going to be an administrative hearing. Let let me just stop you there for one second and note that there is a distinction between how private colleges and universities 
are allowed to deal with these things as opposed to state institutions, correct? Absolutely. And, and the reason why it matters is because when the government is taking an action against you, the Bill of Rights and the Maryland Constitution protects you from arbitrary actions by the government. You have what's called right to due process of law. Okay. With regard to a private institution, your rights are determined by contract because the private institution is not the government. It, they're, they're not, it's not what's called state action against you. If a private college is moving for a student disciplinary hearing against you, it's because you violated their rules, which are typically set up in the student handbook. So that student handbook is a contract between you and the private university. Well, let me ask you one question. Doesn't like, don't the state institutions in Maryland like the university? University of Maryland and Towson and that sort of thing also have student handbooks? Absolutely. And, the, and, and there are private contractual rights that can exist as a result of that student handbook. Certainly, they set out the rules and, uh, and a state university's breach of those rules could be a breach of contract. But also, the state university has other rights that they have to guarantee, due process rights that the Supreme Court have said apply to all public institutions, even high schools. Public high schools can't suspend you without some kind of due process hearing. You have the right to notice, right opportunity to be heard. Those rights are probably uh, less clear and less important uh, depending on you know, how minor the suspension is. For example, the Supreme Court, in one of the very <laughs> few cases involving the rights of students, in a case called Goss, said that for a suspension of 10 days or less, the only right that a student has is right to notice an opportunity to be heard, but not much more than that. But the Supreme Court also said that if the suspension is more than 10 days, then more important rights might be, may be implicated. And so there's very little guidance from the Supreme Court about what is the limits of due process in student disciplinary hearings. The, um, the important thing to note is since the Obama administration put out these regulations in schools, they have changed, almost all colleges and universities have changed their procedures as a result of that guidance. And what they've done is they've essentially instituted what's called an investigatory model. And that is to say that the schools appoint an investigator who is allegedly impartial, but is really in reality not, who takes the information from the participants, who gathers, who talks to witnesses, and that investigator writes up a report that essentially summarizes the evidence. So rather than having an adversary proceeding where an independent tribunal assesses evidence and hears parties cross-examined to assess credibility, the evidence is presented through an investigator. And that process has deprived respondents in these cases of important rights. So to be clear, in essence, what you are saying is rather than having the complaining person who says that there was a sexual assault against them, for example, appear and testify about things and the person who is the assaultor testify about things and them being able to examine each other and having a lawyer and that sort of thing, all of that's off the table. All of that's off the table. And in fact, not only that, but in most cases, the respondent doesn't have a right to have a lawyer do anything but sit there and advise him. He doesn't have the right to uh, participate in any of these proceedings. There's no right to a participating lawyer. So uh, also there might be a criminal proceeding pending, but uh, if the respondent says, I don't want to talk, then the university will proceed against them even if they might violate their rights uh, to remain silent in a criminal proceeding. 
So it sounds a little bit like these Obama guidelines take away many rights that are secured to people under the U.S. Constitution and the Maryland Constitution. Absolutely. And in fact, the Maryland Court of Appeals in multiple cases has said that in an administrative hearing, the right to cross-examine the complaining witness is a fundamental right in our system. Think about any system where a person is uh, in a judicial tribunal and a person is making a complaint against them. The person that's subject to that complaint would have the right to test the credibility through a lawyer to ask questions about whether or not what they're saying is true. That doesn't happen in Title IX cases. In fact, what happens is the alleged victim gets to talk to the administrator, the administrator gets to write a report about what that person said, and that becomes the evidence that is presented against the respondent at a hearing before a tribunal where there's no opportunity for the respondent, typically the guy, to bring her there and see whether she was lying or not. So, you know, just to be clear, it's a tribunal. It's got to be a judge or it's got to be what, what, what no, these student it, things, who makes the judgment? Uh, basically a panel of students and faculty and staff chosen and trained by the Title IX Administrative Office. So they actually, they have to be quote unquote trained. They're not people chosen at random. It's not like a jury where they go and they pick people at random from the university. No, these are people that sit on tribunals that are trained by the Title IX office that are, from my point of view, indoctrinated. And it's very unlikely that once the Title IX administrator has made a decision in the report that you've likely violated Title IX, that that tribunal would ever overturn what the administrator said. So it sounds like an awful lot of this just turns on what the investigator says. Absolutely. The investigator is the whole ball of wax. Do you get to cross-examine the investigator? You get to ask the investigator questions. That's correct. Okay. You can ask the investigator questions. You can or your lawyer can? Only you. Your lawyer can't do it. You're not lawyers not allowed to participate. Lawyer can sit there and, you know, write you notes. So let's paint the picture. In essence, you have, for lack of a better term, a jury of students and faculty and staff, and you have an investigator who presumably is professionally trained and has arrived at a conclusion one way or the other, and then the student is supposed to defend themselves by examining the investigator. That's correct. That's that's how that's how it works. And the investigator might be a lawyer. In many cases, they are these days. Uh, it's a you know a student gets to go against a trained investigator who is really more the way I would describe it is like a Title IX policeman. That's the way I would describe it. It's sort of like trial by police report. It's a system where it's almost impossible to defend oneself. And L- let me let me stop you there. So what's there's the, been a lot of litigation about. This. What's the big deal? Well, the the big deal is that if if you if Let's take a a situation which is typical in one of these sexual misconduct cases where a guy and a girl go out, they're partying, both parties consume copious amounts of alcohol, they both get drunk, they wind up back at somebody's room and the next morning, and something happened over the night, but the woman doesn't really remember what happened, but she knows something happened. Her clothes are off, she wakes up naked, she doesn't really remember what happened. That is a common type of Title IX complaint. And, you know, her memory, she may have very little memory of what happened, but she assumes that there was sexual activity without consent. And so the question of what is consent becomes a very important question in these cases. The guy may come in and say, you know, she wasn't any more drunk than me. 
she went along with everything that happened. Everything was consensual. And the woman says it wasn't. And so you have a set of facts that are at odds with each other. How do we decide who's right? Well, it's very difficult in a normal proceeding, the woman would have to testify and the, the guy through his lawyer would get to ask her questions to test her credibility. And maybe she doesn't have credibility. Maybe she's making up. Maybe she's told two different stories to different people. Or maybe she and he are both intoxicated enough that neither one can tell a cogent story Absolutely. That maybe nobody really knows what happened. But in any event, an investigator might hear that story and paint it in a certain way and decide that that's enough to say that she was the victim of sexual discrimination. And once that happens, there's almost no way to defend against it. So if you have a negative finding at one of these hearings, I presume there is an appeal right? There's an appeal right, but only based on procedural errors, not on fact finding. So in other words, you as a student could look at a transcript or listen to a recording of the hearing, and if you can find some procedural flaw necessary to kick this thing out, then maybe you prevail on appeal. Maybe, but the odds are pretty So low. do you have a sense, for example, at the University of Maryland, what percentage of people who go before these tribunals are found to be in the wrong? What I would say is that if, you, if a student is the recipient of a sexual misconduct complaint— his best chance of beating it would be at the level of the investigation. Okay. Once the investigator has found probable cause, I would think the odds of beating it at that point are very, very low. That's my sense. And of presumably it. on appeal and as well. Same thing on appeal. And the sanctions can be? Well, they can be suspension or expulsion. And, so and people, that would go on your student transcript. And so, as a, you know, so you have the scarlet letter. If you were expelled from school based on sexual misconduct, any other school that you want to apply to would become aware of that. And I would presume it would also mean that however many years you are into your college career and however much money you've spent on it just kind of goes out the window. It goes right out the window. That's it. You're done. Okay. Unless you can get admitted somewhere else and get your credits transferred. So I understand, and we're getting towards the end of the show, but there has been a dramatic change in how these cases are, are theoretically going to be conducted going forward, right? Well, that's true. Last week, the uh, Trump administration, Betsy DeVos, she has said that she is going to have rulemaking in the normal course. That is to say, they're going to submit rules about this that are subject to public comment and consideration by multiple parties, including, I think, the legal community. And I would point out, I don't want to sound to say that sexual misconduct is not a problem. It's a big problem. It's a problem that needs to be dealt with. And I, you know, in my opinion, the best way to deal with it is to educate young people about what's okay and what's not okay, about what consent is, and that, you know, just because somebody may be drunk, you have to be very careful about whether or not they're capable of consent. I think education is the best thing we can do. That's, that's the best way to deal with sexual misconduct. But if there is a situation where there has to be a disciplinary proceeding, we can't get rid of people's rights to do that. It's not okay to say... Suspend your constitutional rights. Suspend your rights. constitutional rights or your rights to due process, your rights to defend yourself. Because, you know, not all allegations are true. 
It may be most allegations are true, but if 20% of the allegations are false and 20% of people are wrongly convicted and, and have are, expelled, their, from and are expelled from school and have their lifelong ability to earn a living impacted by a wrongful complaint of sexual discrimination, that's a problem. We want to be careful about how we do these. So the Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos has listened to some of the people that have complained about the due process rights and say we want to treat these things fairly. One of the things she said recently is that schools have to be consistent about how they treat all sexual misconduct cases with other disciplinary cases. So if the standard of proof is clear and convincing for everything else... Like you were talking earlier about everything graffiti else, here at HCC. Everything else. Or think about this. If I rob my roommate... With a gun? With a gun, and there was a campus sexual misconduct, a, a disciplinary case against me, then I would have a right to a lawyer and have have my case decided by clear and convincing evidence. If you robbed somebody. Right. But if somebody said that I, you know, made an untoward, you know, I, I, I kissed a woman that didn't want to be kissed, then I don't have those rights at all. Even if I didn't think it was true, even if she was just saying it, I wouldn't have the right to cross-examine her. I wouldn't have the right to call witnesses to my hearing. I wouldn't have the right to have that decided by clear and convincing evidence. So what the Secretary of Education in her recent guidance says is you have to have the same types of standards for all student disciplinary hearings. If you have clear and convincing evidence for other types of offenses, you'd have to have the same for sexual misconduct. If you have preponderance for everything else, then you can do a preponderance for but the standards have to be the same in sexual misconduct cases as in all other disciplinary cases otherwise that could be discrimination based on gender against men well it's a fascinating topic and it sounds as though it's moving into an entirely different world has there been a significant case before the united states supreme <laughs> court yet on there this has, topic there has not there has been much litigation in the federal courts over these issues and the cases have gone both ways there have been significant cases that have said that these types of procedures are violative of student rights, and many of these cases have been settled by students that have been expelled with the schools. There have been likewise many cases that have sustained these kinds of procedures, and so it is probably something that the Supreme Court, I would think, in the next several years will be heard on, but has not as of yet. Well, it's a fascinating topic where well-intended people want to combat sexual assault and sexual misconduct on campus, and sometimes calibrating the best way to do that is a difficult thing. I'd like to thank you very much, Ron, for appearing today. Thank you, Bob. This is Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Farewell.